gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe, is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp, and my co-host is Rachel Miller. And I know I mentioned that we were going to have a guest we're very much looking forward to. Uh, coming up, and this is that episode, we have Matthew Barrett with us to talk about his book, Simply Trinity. You know, we've talked about the Trinity a lot. I think our first episode on the Trinity was with you, Rachel, before you were mm. co-host. And so, and one thing I, I want to just say, one thing I appreciate, and I think a lot of our listeners will appreciate, is I think sometimes uh, people are overwhelmed with Taken uh, into a theological book, but I thought this was very readable and easy to understand. I very much appreciated that. So, um, before we get started, could you share a little bit about yourself and then also why you wrote this book? Yeah, I, I'm more than happy to. Um, you know, I've been teaching theology for a little while now, I think uh, about a decade actually. And I teach here at Midwestern Seminary uh, in Kansas City, the home of uh, great barbecue, <laughs> uh, among other things. And uh, I am so blessed uh, to be married to Elizabeth, and uh, I have so just some lovely uh, children as well. Uh, my wife, Elizabeth, uh, she has played a big part, uh, not just with my on ongoing writing and, and whatnot, but um, she was actually very instrumental when I first uh, started to learn theology. She was the one that started to introduce me to, you know, an Augustine, for example. And so uh, I have to just mention her. And of course, that was pivotal to uh, breaking into the doctrine of the Trinity eventually. Uh, I'm also uh, the editor of uh, Credo Magazine and, and have a podcast there, the Credo Podcast. And so uh, I'm just so encouraged to, to see podcasts like, like yours as well, 
and uh, they're really uh, taking theology seriously. But uh, as as for why I wrote the book itself, simply Trinity, the unmanipulated Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, long story short, uh, I've been studying the Trinity for years and teaching it, um, and the more the more I have studied the doctrine of the Trinity, the more I've realized especially in, look, in, in reading the history, uh, the, especially the modern history, the last 200 years, the more I've realized we really have, in significant ways, uh, we've drifted. Uh, I call this Trinity Drift in my book. We've drifted uh, from a biblical and uh, an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity that has been confessed by some of the, the great uh, great historical figures of the church and uh, set down in one of the greatest, maybe the greatest uh, creed, the Nicene Creed. So that was a, and I can, I'm more than happy to talk about how that happened, but uh, that, that was a bit of a wake up call to realize, you know, in the 20th century, we, we think there's been a, a Trinitarian Renaissance, but in, in reality, uh, it's more or less a Renaissance of something very different. And so that took me back uh, really to the basics to say, I think we need a book uh, that can, can take us back to just biblical and Christian orthodoxy uh, in a way that, that isn't entangled by so many of the uh, very modern drifts away from this Trinity. Uh, like Colleen said, I really appreciated reading this book, you know, as a lay person, you know, it, it was clearly written with uh, those of us in mind who don't have, you know, necessarily a seminary background to know all the terms that are thrown around, you know, going back to the uh, the debate, 2016 Trinity debate, and people are throwing around words like simplicity and impassibility and, and, and I, I'm not even going to write the, the, all the, the Latin words and terms that are, are included. And I really appreciate how you took the time for each of those to explain what that means and how it works and why it's important. And I feel like I have a much better handle on a lot of the uh, terminology that are used in the, the doctrine of the Trinity. So thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's so encouraging to hear. And especially I mean that one. This is one of the reasons why I wrote the book because you know oftentimes we're we have these academic discussions and uh, meanwhile those who are in the church um, are, are just not aware of them, but they have big consequences. And it sounds like you've picked up on that. And so yeah, this this book, the previous book, uh, uh, was none greater uh, the undomesticated attributes of God, and both of these books really tries to take these crucial, um, really crucial theological um, definitions and, um, and truths and try to, uh, try to bring them into the light a little bit so that both pastors and lay people uh, can understand as well. Absolutely. I guess it's certainly, you're right, there's a lot of academic discussion, but it really does have very practical implications on the men and women in the pews and in our lives and what we understand and about our faith. And, um, you know, these are not just, you know, these esoteric discussions, but they're very practical. Mm. Um, 
So you mentioned a minute ago kind of the thesis of your book that the modern church has drifted from the biblical orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. And I would love to hear you talk a little bit about why that's happened, how it's happened, why it matters. Well, I think the first thing I think the first thing I have to say is that <clears throat> when we look at the last century or two, we begin to notice that the Trinity has been redefined and it's being redefined in significant ways. So just a minute ago, you, you mentioned uh, the word simplicity and by simplicity, we, we don't mean God's basic or easy to understand. Rather, we mean that God is one. Uh, God is without parts. Uh, God is, he's not composed like we are uh, of, of different parts. He, he's not dependent on a, on a composer himself. And uh, part of what this means is that, well, this has great implications actually for the Christian life because it means God's not going to fall apart on you. Um, he, all that is in God is God. And so that might sound a bit uh difficult to understand, but actually it's assumed in just our basic reading of the Bible. So when we come to First uh, John, for example, and John says, God is love, there you are seeing uh, simplicity. Uh, God doesn't merely act in a loving way. Uh, he's not someone who just merely possesses love. Rather, uh, we say something much stronger. God is love. And we could say that with so many, we could say that about his holiness, for example. Well, that's very different uh, than how we speak about ourselves, um, because we, we are uh, very much made up of parts, and uh, we're not simple in that sense. And, and so this was, early on in the church, this was actually just very basic to being an, an Orthodox Christian one faithful to the Bible. And it was also crucial to their doctrine of the Trinity uh, to explain how it is that the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, these are not uh, separate, uh, divided uh, individuals. That, that tends to be how we think of unity. You know, we're, the three of us are on this podcast and we're having a conversation and we're, we're getting along and uh, we're, we're sort of working towards a, a common goal, that sort of thing. But God's unity is actually far more profound, far more one. Uh, when we describe Father, Son, and Spirit, they are actually uh, of the same essence, the same divine nature. And when we talk about then what distinguishes them, well, the church has been careful to pay attention to uh, the language the many colorful ways that Scripture describes uh, Father, Son, Spirit, and it's, it's almost given away in the names themselves. Uh, the Father is Father because He begets His Son. That's what it means for the Son to be Son, except this is God we're talking about. So, this isn't uh, like our begetting. It, it's an eternal, it's an eternal begetting. And likewise, we could talk about the Spirit. The, the Spirit proceeds or is spirated from the Father, and the Son. Uh, well, the Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten, the Spirit is spirated. These are, are really everywhere in Scripture. They're assumed 
so many times in the way that, say, John's gospel talks about the Son as the only begotten Son, or Paul, uh, for example, in Hebrews, they use all kinds of imagery to talk about the Son as the image of the invisible God or the radiance of God's glory and so on. Well, these, uh, these alone distinguish the persons. The Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten, the Spirit is spirated. This is what distinguishes the, the three persons of the Godhead. Well, this language that we're describing, very basic to Scripture and how uh, the Bible reveals to us the gospel, why is it that the Son is sent? Well, this is the Son who's from the Father from all eternity, and likewise the Spirit. Why is the Spirit given to us? Well, this is the same Spirit who actually proceeds from the Father and the Son from all eternity. So, it's really basic to Revelation and, and the gospel itself. Well, this was language that was used to protect Christianity, um, to protect not just the deity of the Son, but a correct understanding of the Trinity when heresies were threatening the early church. However, everything changed. And this is where uh, my book kind of comes into the picture, because once you get into the modern period, all of a sudden, uh, this language is either either abandoned or it's redefined. And God is, as Trinity, is redefined in significant ways. Now, all of a sudden, uh, modern theologians are not so much concerned uh, with what we just said, but rather they want to focus on threeness, uh, sometimes to to the exclusion of oneness, and they want to instead describe the Trinity as as a type of society, uh, one with really different individuals who each have their own will and their own center of consciousness, and and some have gone so far to say, well, these they can even act uh, solo or independent of one another. And this, uh, in the modern era, became all too convenient then to say, well, if the Trinity is, should be redefined more in terms of a, communi- a community or a society, then it's a society that's not all that different from our society. And, and so they, were, they quickly moved from the Trinity and said, well, this then can be our paradigm, our, our prototype for, for any number of agendas in human society, whether it's politics or uh, church polity, or even gender, gender discussions. And the, the list really do, does go on and on. I, I remember uh, being on vacation one time with my family and uh, walking into a bookstore. And, and I love to, to, to go to bookstores wherever I go. I'm bringing just loads and loads of books back and setting them up on my shelves and just realizing as I sat there and looked at my shelves, just thinking, this is it. This is the history of, this is our history of, of the last 100 years right here. And every single shelf was trying to use the Trinity in some, some way for their agenda or their social program, if I can put it that way. And it hit me pretty hard. We, we have been using, even sometimes manipulating the Trinity redefining it first as a, as a type of society, and then really using it for just about every social agenda under the sun. You talk about some of those social agendas um, that have manipulated the doctrine of the Trinity, and that was kind of a good intro to what I'm going to ask. Could you maybe talk about where ESS fits into that? Um, that's something that we've talked about a lot and something that a lot of our listeners have questions on, in large part because that's what they were taught 
And then uh, kind of the ESS wars happened and they're like, wait, maybe what I taught wasn't right after all. And so we have a, we have a lot of ladies that have been trying to grasp it and understand it. Well, I think the first thing I would say to those who are listening and, and they, you know, as they're listening to us, they think, yeah, that's me. Uh, that, that describes me. I think the first thing I would say is you're not alone. <laughs> um, you're, you're definitely not alone. <clears throat> Um, it's not just you. Uh, this has been uh, the way the Trinity has been taught uh, for decades now, many decades, um, even before the turn of the 21st century. And there's many reasons for this. I think uh, ESS or EFS or ERAS, d- depending on what you know, which one you want to use. Um, this became very popular in really 1980s, 1990s, and and 2000s. So, so popular that it just became kind of the standard way to teach the Trinity. And it was just assumed, it was just assumed, oh, this this is just Bible. And in large part, because that's what the advocates said, oh, we're we're just teaching the Bible. Um, However, when you look at the language that ESS uses, uh, well, you'll you'll quickly discover, actually, this language is not coming out of nowhere. <laughs> um, it has a history itself. And whether advocates of ESS always realize it or not, uh, I argue in my book, they're actually quite indebted uh, to the typical ways uh, that uh, the modern era has described the Trinity, and, and we just kind of describe some of that. So they, they will say, well, the Trinity is a society, uh, one in which you have uh, these individual agents uh, who, who cooperate with one another. And uh, they, some, it, very early on, they were uh, quite, uh, well, quite uh, critical of, of traditional um, even orthodox beliefs like divine simplicity, which we just described, or the doctrine of eternal generation, which we also just just described, that the Son is begotten from the Father's essence from all eternity. And so early on, they really abandoned and were quite severe in their criticisms of these just very key orthodox beliefs. And instead, they said, well, we need to uh, describe the Trinity as a society in which there are different roles and relationships. And by relationships, they didn't necessarily mean what we just described. The, the Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten, the Spirit is spirated. We could call those eternal relations of origin. They didn't mean relations in that sense. They, they really meant more in the modern sense, relationships, uh, which is quite then parallel to, to human relationships. And so, uh, men, the, the persons of the Trinity have relationships, sort of like we, we might have relationships. Um, and then, uh, not, not surprisingly, um, they too wanted to move from this social understanding of the Trinity to use the Trinity as a paradigm uh, for society. But I should mention, before, before I get into that, uh, one of the key aspects of, of their beliefs um, for the longest time, they uh, were quite adamant, and still are, um, that what what makes the, 
the son, son, or the father, father? Well, they said they are father and son because uh, they are defined by a, a hierarchy or what they would call a functional hierarchy. In other words, to be father means that the father is, is uh, greater in glory or supremacy um, or authority or power than the son. And, and so to be son, well, that must just mean that the son is lesser in glory or authority or power or so on. Now, they were quick to qualify that, oh, the son's still equal in essence. And so they made this very novel uh, distinction between uh, the son being equal in essence, but nonetheless subordinate in, in role. Um, in other words, in the 20th century, many modern, it's a bit ironic because in the 20th century, many modern theologians did the exact same thing. They defined the Trinity as a type of society of roles. Uh, the difference is that they just ended up in a different spot. They, they said, well, if the Trinity is a type of society, then we want equality. Well, ESS came along and said, well, we too are, are defining the Trinity as roles and relationships, but we want hierarchy. And they believed that they had, um, you know, scriptural warrant to do that. And by the way, uh, to clarify for our listeners, they're not just talking about um, what we might call the imminent life of God. So God apart from the world. Um, Well, I I should rephrase that. They're not just talking about the incarnation uh, or God towards the world. They're actually talking about the imminent life of God. That is God uh, apart from the world. In other words, these roles of hierarchy are actually person-defining. That's how crucial they are. They, they're true. Uh, they, they make the Trinity a Trinity apart from the world. Well, from there, they they actually then moved quite quickly to say, well, this uh, this Trinity of hierarchy. This then is a um, a paradigm, a, a prototype, then to to show us uh, how there can be hierarchy in marriage between the husband and the wife, uh, and then also in the church. And some even went so far to say society, uh, between male and female in society. So that's a bit of an overview, though, though really quick. Um, and, and I should probably add one more thing. And when you know, one of you mentioned uh, in 2016 how controversy erupted, mm. after that point, um, with quite a bit of, of uh, pushback, on ESS, um, a number of them said, well, okay, we will now affirm eternal generation. You think of like Wayne Grudem, for example, who in his systematic theology denied this doctrine for the longest time. And so now they've said, okay, we're going to affirm eternal generation and praise God for that. But um, at the same time, uh, we have to pay attention because they said, well, we're going to affirm this doctrine in the Nicene Creed, but we're going to affirm it uh, because we think that this actually now supports and, and increases our case for a, a, a functional hierarchy within God. So I always mention this because uh, sometimes folks uh, get a little excited and say, oh, but they're affirming eternal generation now, and to which I respond, yeah, but, but for what reason and for mm-hmm. what what purpose? That's important to keep in mind. And uh, so now they've said, well, the sons, uh, 
functional subordination. This now flows out of eternal generation. And we can talk more about you know, how we respond, but uh, I think that actually uh, this, this escalates things. Um, this actually makes uh, ESS um, even, even more serious in, in its air because now, uh, if that's true, then, then uh, this functional subordination is, is actually uh, it, it, it's very much linked uh, to eternal generation itself. And if you know anything about eternal generation, then you know that, well, this actually has much to do, uh, not just with the person of the son, but the person's uh, equality with the father. And so I think that this actually poses um, an even bigger problem. And in some ways you, you've already kind of hit it. It, it seems like a uh, kind of maybe simplistic question to ask, but why is it so dangerous to teach that there's hierarchy or subordination within the Trinity? Hmm. Well, it's a very good question. When we uh, go back to the fourth century, um, this was really the big question because uh, you had uh, Arians, as they were called, who looked at the sun and they uh, said, well, uh, this sun uh, cannot be uh, begotten from the Father from eternity. And we, I won't go into it. There are many motivations as to why they, they said that. Um, one was because they are trying to preserve the monarchy uh, of God. And um, in, in the process, um, they interpret... Uh, the son's begetting as as really something that that occurs at a specific at a specific point, and so they Arius has this famous statement where he says there, there once was a time when the son was not. This had real practical implications in the church. So so don't think that this was you know just merely an academic discussion. Uh, this this uh, was the talk of the church. Um, they were writing songs, hymns uh, on both sides. Um, and many of the church fathers, you think of like Athanasius or um, the Cappadocians, as they were called, they realized the stakes were high because um, if, this, if the Arians are right, then um, this affects worship uh, and whether they, they felt they could even worship the sun. Um, the key difference, you know, sometimes we think that this is just about the deity of Christ. It's, it's actually about the Trinity. Uh, the key difference was, is what explains unity in the Trinity? Is it merely a unity of will or wills? Uh, that's what the Arians said. Uh, or is it something, something um, substantial? Is it a unity of divine essence? And that's where... Um, Many of the church fathers came on the scene and said, "It, it scripture must must lead us to conclude. No, this is this is a unity of essence." Well, as things progressed and um, language was was really important to get right, they used certain language to to really try to make sure that this connection between persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. 
and their co-equality in essence was was tight. And so they would say things like, if I can introduce some some different language, they would say things like, well, the one, and here they're being technical because they really are trying to get this right. Um, they would say things like, well, the one essence, the one essence has three modes of subsistence. And then they would go on to explain what those are. Um, the father is unbegotten. The, the son is begotten. The spirit is spirated. Um, by that word subsistence, we, we could say existence. Uh, sometimes they would say it differently. They would say, well, the persons are subsistences of the same one undivided essence. Well, why are we getting so technical about this? Um, well, fast forward to uh, ESS. Um, it sounds neat and tidy to distinguish between uh, and say something like, oh, the sun can be equal in essence, but subordinate in role. Um, but if we understand uh, a lot of the history we just talked about, that that actually doesn't work um, because we have to say, well, well what, who is the sun? Um, well, this son is a subsistence of the same divine essence as the father. So it's very difficult at that point to say, to introduce something like uh, subordination and say, oh, it's just in the person <laughs> and, and not, not expect it to sort of be littered through the, the, the divinity as well. It's too, in other words, think of it this way. It's too hard of a divide between the person of Christ and and the divinity itself. Um, we distinguish between the two, but uh, we have to remember that uh, when we talk about the sun, this is, this is the divine sun that, that we are referring to. Um, one other way we could think about this, and maybe, you know, what we've been saying so far is quite technical. So maybe this will help a little bit. Uh, when, <clears throat> when the sun was described, uh, and, and, and the church fathers went to, scriptures. So they would go, say, to the Gospel of John or to Colossians 1 or Hebrews 1 and, and so many other places uh, to, to see how the, the Son is a uh, Son from eternity. Uh, he's the Son who's from the Father. That's what it means to be Son. Uh, he's the Son begotten by the Father from all eternity, apart from the world, apart from the incarnation. Well, they were even a little bit more specific they said, um, what does that mean exactly? Well, it means that the Son is begotten from the Father's divine nature. In other words, eternal generation, it not only distinguishes the Son as Son, and, and that alone distinguishes the Son as Son. That's part of the problem with ESS is they're trying to find something else to distinguish the Son. Um. So it's not just the case that this distinguishes the sun, but they also realized, oh, this actually protects and safeguards the, the co-equality of the sun. He, he's begotten from the very essence of the father. And that was something that many of the, the heretical groups could not say. They, they would not say because uh, they understood the implications. So, all that to say, when we come to ESS, um, you know, it's, it's fair to, to, to say, okay, they're not, uh, their view is not identical, say, with something like Arianism. Uh, nonetheless, when we do theology, 
we don't just say, you know, what is it that we see on paper, but we have to ask, how do we get there? And this is where many of the critics have pointed out, actually, ESS, um, the way that they are interpreting the Bible, the way that they are coming to their conclusions, um, it's actually compromising. It's actually compromising uh, key key aspects of, of just a biblical and orthodox trinity. You started to touch on this a little bit, but I think uh, something would be really helpful to explain is how should we distinguish the persons of the trinity? Yeah, this is oftentimes really the crux of the matter, isn't it? Because uh, in the, the modern era, or even with, you know, this discussion of ESS, uh, listeners may have noticed that they're looking to something else, something besides the Son begotten from the Father. They're looking for something else uh, to distinguish uh, the Son from the Father. And so this, this has been really quite popular, uh, popular thing to do. Um, I think in the 20th century, this is why we can say there's been a, a rise of social Trinitarianism or a social Trinity. And uh, all that's meant to convey is, is that, uh, well, we're, we're looking for something functional, something that the, the persons are doing, um, a certain activity to then define who they are. And um, as we've mentioned, notice how subjective that can, that can become. Uh, rather, when we define the persons of the Trinity, we're not, we're not, we shouldn't be turning to just our own lives and, and how we define persons, right? You know, I can have a, a relationship uh, with my dog, for example, in a, in a, in, in a, in a way, uh, or I might have a relationship with, with my, uh, my son or my daughter, or perhaps it's with a friend who comes over the, to the house. Um, and so often we think of the Trinity that way, and we think, well, here's three persons, and they just have relationships with each other. Some have even gone so far to say, well, what then explains the unity? Oh, it just must be that they really know how to dance. <laughs> it's a divine dance. They sort of link arms, and, and they, boy, aren't they in rhythm, you know? Um, well, actually, if we, if we think about it, um, and I mentioned this in my book, this, we're just asking for it. Uh, what are we asking for? Well, we're, we're flirting with tritheism at this point because we've looked to something else, uh, to something functional to define both the unity and the distinction of, uh, of, in the Trinity. And so what I, what I say in my book is I, I think we need to hit pause and we need to go back and we need to look at scripture and we need to do so listening to, to you know, some of the, the best Trinitarian theologians of, of church history, you know, an Augustine, for example, or an Athanasius. And we need to realize that, well, when scripture distinguishes the persons, uh, it's very careful to preserve their unity as well. And when it distinguishes the persons, it distinguishes them according to one thing alone. And we've already mentioned it those eternal relations of origin. So what does it mean 
for the son to be son. Well, he's a son because he's begotten from the father. It's almost too simple to say. Uh, like, and this is the father who's unbegotten. He, he's, he's not begotten himself. In uh, the spirit. Well, what distinguishes the spirit? Well, we call the spirit spirit because this is the spirit who is spirated, who proceeds from the father and the son, but from all eternity. And notice, we're not referring to something that's happening in history or in time. Um, we're not referring to something that's taking place in the incarnation, right? That would actually be disastrous as if the Trinity doesn't become a Trinity until, say, Jesus is baptized or the Spirit comes at Pentecost. Uh, rather, we're recognizing, well, what we're seeing take place in history, um, those things are meant to reflect and reveal uh, who the Trinity is apart from us. Um, and, and so that's where we can say, actually, one thing alone distinguishes these persons, um, these eternal relations of origin. Now, that's a very different way of speaking. It may be really, really foreign to people today, but actually, if you go back in history, um, this way of speaking, uh, yeah, it took a little bit, little bit of work. It is a mystery after all. But this way of speaking was just considered uh, basic and essential to what it meant to be a Christian. Um, and it distinguished Christians actually from heretical groups. Unfortunately, uh, once we, we come to the modern era in our own day, uh, that's not the case. You can actually have evangelical theologians who are saying, well, I'm going to dispense with a doctrine like eternal generation. And yet, I'm. I'm still perfectly consistent with Christian orthodoxy. That would have been a very bizarre and, and quite a shocking thing to do for the majority of church history. You know, you mentioned a little bit earlier about the Nicene Creed, and I really appreciated your section on that and the history of it and why it's important. And I wondered if you could speak a little bit today to why it was written, what we can learn from it today. You know, why do these creeds and confessions still matter to us? Yes, well, they certainly do, and it, it really is a tragedy that um, so many churches today are, are just unfamiliar, um, not just with the creeds or, or saying the creeds, but, um, but even just the concepts, the very language uh, of, of, say, the Nicene Creed. What I, what I find just so uh, incredible is that when you read the Nicene Creed, um, it's three paragraphs long. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so it, it can sound so intimidating, um, but note what, what's happened. I mean, um, many of the, the greatest minds of uh, that century came together, realizing that the survival of Christianity uh, was at stake. And they wrote these, these three paragraphs in order to protect what the Bible says about the Trinity. In other words, uh, you, maybe you've heard that saying, you know, every heretic has uh, their Bible verse. <laughs> uh, well, that, that was certainly true in the fourth century. Um, in fact, the whole debate with Arians and then eventually semi-Arians erupted because uh, they said, no, we're, we're just believing the Bible. We're, we're just reading the text and what it says. And so it became necessary um, for these church fathers to say, well, we need words then. We need really good words. 
in order to to articulate what the Trinity does and does not mean. Um, and so they gathered together in order to to do this, uh, and, and really to to protect what the Bible actually says. Now, um, I mean, our listeners can can probably just Google the Nicene Creed and it'll come up. It's really a beautiful statement, and you'll notice uh, right in the middle there, it gets right to the heart of the matter when it says that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, but it's very careful, and this is what I love about it. It says, uh, he is begotten from the Father before all time, light from light. Here, I think it's picking up on the biblical imagery, uh, true God from true God. And then it says, begotten, not created, of the same essence as the Father. And from there, it, it then transitions to talk about salvation. In other words, I think that they understood that if, if, if this is not the Son who is begotten from the Father from all eternity, then this Son can't save us. Uh, he can't come into redemptive history and accomplish salvation for us. And, and so they move from talking about who is, it's actually quite similar to John's gospel, chapter one. How does John begin? Well, he begins by talking about the word, the son, and saying, well, this word was with God. This word was God. And then he goes on to say, well, this is this word. Who is this word? It's the only begotten son of God. And on that basis, John can then transition in the second half of his chapter to say, well, if that's who he is, then the Father can send him into the world to, to be incarnate and save us. And of course, the, the Nicene Creed, uh, towards the end of the fourth century, they didn't just talk about the Son, but they then transitioned to talk about the Holy Spirit. And they say, well, this Holy Spirit is the Lord, uh, the life giver the one who proceeds from the Father, and, and eventually they would say from the Father and the Son. And then they, they make a, a, a shocking statement because there were some in, the day, in their day who denied this truth. They say uh, this Holy Spirit is to be worshipped and glorified together with the Father and the Son. So this is a corrective to us today because we, we tend to think, oh, if, if the Son's begotten or the Spirit is spirated, they must be less in some way. But actually, it's just the opposite. Um, here, it says the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And so, this is the same, the Spirit then that's to be worshipped with the Father and the Son. Why is it that they, they could say something like that? Well, one, one reason why is because they, they had to remind those listening uh, this is an eternal reality. It's timeless. Uh, this It's not like how things work in our world, where there's a before or an after or a greater or a less. And so this is why I tell people, listen, when, when we talk about what distinguishes the persons, uh, we, have to, we have to remove and, and really get rid of anything, uh, any type of assumption that would somehow limit God, that would somehow take something human of our own and, and project it into God so that the Son, for example, is less in some way, whether that's in terms of essence or, or even functionality, or likewise with the Spirit. 
whenever we do that sort of thing, uh, we're, we're taking something that's carnal and, and really def- something that defines our human limitations, and we're, we're really imposing that back on, onto God apart from the world, God in and of himself. And that, that can be quite dangerous. You mentioned a little bit earlier eternal generation. Um, can you talk about why that's important to under- our understanding of the Trinity? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when we talk about eternal generation, I, I realize that can sound so foreign to us today. We're not, we're not used to uh, thinking or, or even describing the sun this way. It's, it's sort of been lost from our vocabulary, uh, which is really sad because um, this is the way to distinguish the sun as, as a sun, um, not some other way. Um, why is this? Why does this matter so much? Well, when we look at Scripture, we actually see this very concept come out in, in so many different ways. Uh, a minute ago, I mentioned you know John's Gospel and how John uh, will use will describe this concept in different ways. Uh, in, in John one, we even see two of them. He's described as the Word of God. Uh, later, he's going to use the language of begetting, which is very uh, very much right at the core of what it means to be a son. Um, he's begotten, but he's begotten from eternity. It's not like begetting in our world. Um, later on, Jesus in John chapter 5 will also um, really allude to this concept when uh, he says in John chapter 5, the, the father has life in himself, and so he has granted the son to have life in himself. And you can tell that he's not, he's not just merely talking about something that's happening uh, in his ministry. He's talking about his eternal, who he is, um, really beside the world, outside of the world, who he is in the Trinity, because of the way that the religious uh, leaders uh, freak out at him <laughs> and realize uh, you're, you're claiming, you're, you're not, you're claiming something uh, that's blasphemous. You're claiming to actually be one with, to be from God um, from eternity. So they recognize that actually right away. But of course, Scripture um, has, I I call this a a mosaic, because Scripture uses all kinds of different language and imagery uh, to communicate the same truth. And so, if you if you turn, for example, to the book of Hebrews, it's going to describe the sun as the radiance of the glory of God. Uh, or if you you go to um, Colossians one, for example, it's going it's going to describe him as the image of the invisible God. Um, and of course, one of the most important ones is wisdom. Um, I don't think it's accidental that Paul. Uh, when he's writing to the Corinthians, is going to describe Jesus as the wisdom of God. Uh, this seems to echo Proverbs 8, uh, in which uh, it speaks of, of wisdom from of old. Um, and, of course, we, we could go on. Um, in fact, uh, Micah chapter 5 loves to speak about uh, he who is really the from from ancient days. I don't think it's an accident that in Matthew chapter 2, at the beginning of his gospel, he's going to describe this. He's going to use this language as well, but he's going to apply it to Christ himself. 
So there's all we could go on. There, there's all kinds of indications like this in Scripture that when we think about Jesus, you know, we love to talk about what Jesus has done for us, what he did in his life and his death and resurrection, and amen to that. Um, that's a great thing. But we have to be careful that we don't we 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 don't forget that well this this Jesus the, he's the Son of God uh, he he existed eternally he he never had a beginning he's he's begotten from his father but this is a, a beginning that uh, a begetting that's timeless and so whether the world ever came into existence or whether God ever decided to save us. Uh, he is the son who's begotten from the father regardless. Um, this this truth is is really then not just something that uh, is convenient to believe in, um, say for the sake of our salvation, uh, but is actually defining, um, central to, to the doctrine of the Trinity. Thank you for that. It's like I said, that one of the things I really appreciated about your book was the way that you helped explain some of these terms um, for the layman, right? That these are a lot of words that get thrown around. And um, another one that I appreciated was that you explained was simplicity. And you've mentioned it a couple of times, but could you give a kind of a short definition of, you know, what is simplicity and why it matters? Yeah. Uh, when we use a word like, like simplicity, I mean, maybe the best way to think of it uh, is in terms of the creator-creature distinction, right? So, hopefully, uh, most of our listeners out there will will resonate just with this basic truth that uh, there's a distinction between who God is as and and the creator, um, and and who we are, and that distinction means everything to us. It 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 actually is you so unique to Christianity because um, it tells us that, and we see this right away in Genesis chapter one, that we, we see this in the new Testament as well. You think of uh, Paul and his apologetic encounters in Acts 17. Why is this di- distinction uh, so crucial? Well, uh, it reminds us that, well, we, as the creature, we are finite. Uh, we are very much uh, dependent and contingent and changing and and very mutable uh, creatures, um, but that's not the case with God. Uh, God is infinite, um, and he's 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 incomprehensible for that reason. And he's not just infinite, but um, he's independent, which which not only means that uh, he's self-existent and self-sufficient, but he has life in and of himself. Um, we use a word called aseity to, to describe this. Uh, and he doesn't change. He is immutable, unchanging. And, and we could go on. But uh, the point here is that um, there's a major difference between who the creator is and, and who we are. Now, simplicity is really at the heart of this. Because simplicity, while when we look at our world, our world is very much composed, and um, everything in our world is is very much made up of parts. And, uh, well, if we're honest, um, those parts are very divisible (laughs) and and so on. Well, 
again, that's not the case with God. Um, whenever we talk about God, we need to recognize that, well, uh, he's one. He, he, he's not made by anyone. He's not created by anyone. He has no composer himself. And when we talk about who God is, it's not as if he's, he's made up of parts. He, he's not like, a, like an apple pie. As much as I love apple pie, uh, you don't divide God up and, and say, well, this, this part of the pie, that, that's a big piece of the pie. And so let's call that love. And then, okay, this is a smaller piece of the pie. Uh, well, let's just make that holiness, or we don't, we shouldn't do that. Do that with God. Now, we we make distinctions, uh, in, in large part because of our finitude. Uh, it, it's very difficult for us as finite creatures to even think of one attribute and another attribute at the same time. I mean, if it, go ahead and give it a try, it's, it's extremely hard. <laughs> um, but one of the reasons for that is because, well, really, when when we just talk about who God is, all that is in God just is God. Um, his essence is his attributes, and his attributes is essence. And so, um, that means that, uh, like we mentioned, he, he doesn't just act in a holy way. He is holy. Um, he is righteous. And all of this is, is so key, because when when we then transition to the Trinity, it might seem like, well, then we can't have a Trinity. Uh, God can't be three persons. But actually, without simplicity, we can't have a Trinity. Uh, because what we're saying when we talk about these persons is we're saying, well, Father, Son, and Spirit, these aren't, these aren't parts. It's not as if we, we take the, the, the God pie and divide it up in, into three and say, okay, this slice of the pie is Father, and that slice of the pie is Son, and that part is Holy Spirit. Notice, if, if we think that way, all of a sudden, we can have a lesser or a greater, and we've divided God. He's now a divisible, a divisible being. I guess what I'm trying to say is that's tritheism. <laughs> um, so we have, to have, we, we have to realize, okay, that's not going to work. And the point of our earlier discussion was to recognize, well, so often when we go into the direction of a social trinity, we, we start to inch closer in that direction, as if the persons are, are really like divisible, separate individuals. Um, yes, they are distinct, and, and we've, we've said how they're distinct. Um, but we have to remember uh, these three persons are, are actually one in their essence, um, and so simplicity is is quite crucial at this point. Uh, in other words, whether we're talking about Father, Son, or Holy, or Holy Spirit, whichever person we are talking about, we say, well, that person, uh, that person has the one undivided, simple essence in common with the other two persons, and that protects us in in, in big ways. Then. From, from thinking or just assuming um, one person must be greater or another person less or one person must be for or another person after, it guards us from those dangers. There, There's different words that you'll hear in, you know, we have a, a fairly large Facebook group. I think there's like 7,000 in there. And there's some different words that will come up when talking about the Trinity. And sometimes someone will pop up and say, what does that mean? And a couple of those words, I maybe you could explain what they mean and how should we should understand them as economic and 
imminent trinity? Well, that's a great a great question uh, because this this gets at the uh, the main difference uh, between really a biblical and an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity and many of the, uh, the modern ways that we've drifted from the Trinity. So um, let's take that distinction, um, imminent and economic. Or uh, other words that describe that distinction might just be God in himself, so that's imminent, and um, God uh, towards the world in relation to the world. That, that would be economic. Um, sometimes the word economic is used to describe the economy of salvation. All that means is it's referring to the way God operates um, in salvation. Uh, notice how important this distinction is, right? It's, this, it's not two different trinities. It's the same trinity. However, if, if we don't make this distinction between God and himself and God's uh, operations towards the world, what are we prone to do? Well, we're prone to confuse or conflate um, who God is in himself with, with how God has acted in the world for the sake of creation and providence and salvation. Um, this distinction, again, was just very fundamental to um, the doctrine of the Trinity uh, for most of church history. And it protected that creator-creature distinction we just described to make sure we don't project uh, human limitations back onto God as if he is somehow uh, dependent on the world or even determined by the world. This relates to the doctrine of the Trinity because, I mean, just think of this, this uh, I mean, it's, it's actually quite a, a shocking uh, thought. Imagine if um, we, so, we, we so connected God and himself to, to God towards the economy of salvation that we said, well, uh, it's not until he reveals himself or acts um, in the world that he's a trinity. Uh, that would be a scary thought. Um, what is he before then? Um, what is he outside of time? Uh, is, he, is he not trinity and, and, until we come along? So, so notice that that would make um, the trinity entirely dependent. And so we, this is why I, I, I've, say, uh, I've said in the book that um, we have to be careful that we don't think, oh, uh, what God does um, for our sake in history, that, that somehow constitutes who he is apart from us. Um, why does all of this matter? Well, uh, some of this comes back to our earlier discussions, because in the, um, in, in the modern era, uh, um, you have a very popular and influential modern theologian like Jürgen Moltmann, still very popular today. And Moltmann is going to go to the incarnation, and he's going to look at the suffering that occurs in the incarnation, in the humanity of Christ, uh, by virtue of his humanity, and he's going to project that suffering onto the entire Trinity. 
not just onto the deity of Christ, which that itself would 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 be its own problem, but onto Father and Son, as if they suffer, uh, as if this suffering is retroactive. They suffer from from all eternity. So notice what he's done there. He's he's conflated the two: who God is in and of Himself, and and what God is doing in history. Uh, believe it or not, and this is some of the irony. I think this is. Uh, whether they want to admit it or not, this is what's happening with ESS. Mm-hmm. Is they are looking at something that's occurring for the purpose of the of of the the mission of salvation. So the son humbling himself, and uh, we can talk about this. But some of them will say he's he's submitting himself um, to the will of the Father, and rather than reading that in context, which is the incarnation and the economy of salvation, they will say, well, that's, that's just true of the son in and of himself in the Godhead, apart from the world, as if this is what makes him a son. And so I, I argue that actually, I think, I think that they are projecting um, this submission in for the purpose of salvation back into uh, the imminent life of God, and and then that that raises a lot of pro- uh, problems with whether the Son actually um, can actually be co-equal with the Father. So, all that to say, I, my advice is when we come to the economy of salvation, recognize it for what it is. Um, I think that this is one of the reasons why the gospel is so scandalous, why it's so shocking to us, because. This is not, it, it, it's just unbelievable to think that the Son of God would actually assume our human nature. And what's the language that Scripture uses? It, it actually doesn't use words like subordinate. It, it uses the word, words like humbled. He humbled himself to the point of death. He became obedient. In other words, what it's trying to emphasize here is this isn't the something that the son does anyway. Um, this is this is something that the son is doing by for for the sake of our salvation. He humbled himself this low, and he did this for us, not for himself. He did this for us and for the sake of our salvation to represent us, so that we could be forgiven and counted righteous in Christ. Well, that's a very uh, that's a very different understanding then, and I think that that can then preserve the creator-creature distinction uh, rather than than conflate the two. That was a very helpful summary of the of the issues and the concerns and why we need to understand and be careful with how we talk about the Trinity. Um, uh, one thing I wanted to mention earlier, uh, I said to you before we started recording, one thing I really enjoyed about your book and the way that it um, – uh, connects to the laypersons that you use um, fictional eyewitness. Tell the story uh, of Jesus to tell what someone who was there would have seen or understood or put together, but you use a woman. Uh, and I really appreciated that. Uh, much of our audience is women. Um, it was it was nice to have that inclusion there uh, as I was reading it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, this, as I was thinking through 
you know, because a, a lot of times when we are taught, the, when we've been taught the Trinity in the past, okay, um, how have we been taught the Trinity? Well, we've we've been taught it in a very formulaic way. Um, and this is what I, in the book, I call kind of a, a, a narrow biblicism. We, we're, we're sort of taught, well, you go find those verses where it says God is one, and then you, you find verses that, that seem to name Father, Son, Spirit. And, but then you got to take this, this giant, fideistic leap of faith to somehow get to this more uh, theological language of one essence and three persons. And um, when you're taught the Trinity that way, um, it's very easy to, to just insert any, any sort of uh, understanding of the Trinity. And it's also just uh, it's not, it's not the way that, uh, it's not very natural to the way that God himself has revealed who he is to us. And so when you look at the scriptures, um, I, I think that listeners probably know more about the Trinity than they think because, well, the Trinity is revealed to us through the gospel story. Uh, and, uh, it, it, that's beautiful, but we sometimes forget that, uh, as the Trinity is revealed to us um, in the gospel, uh, we sometimes have a hard time understanding this because we, we don't understand what that must have been like. And so that took me back to the drawing board. And, and I thought, you know, I wonder if people would understand some of these com- complicated uh, doctrines. And they are hard to understand because, let's be honest, this is God we're talking about. And it is a mystery. Um, but I wondered if maybe maybe people would uh, better understand it if we we put them in the the shoes of a first century um, a first century Jewish person, and so um, that was part of my motivation. and And uh, I really turned to this fictional character Zipporah to to really bring it to life. and And so I think this is one of the one one of those moments where I think listeners might really enjoy this because as they sort of step into her shoes. They travel with her, uh, both at, at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, and then all the way to the Book of Acts, to Pentecost. And I, I think that um, putting yourselves in, in in her shoes, you you see things from a different perspective. Uh, sometimes we're so used to seeing things, you know, from uh, the the perspective of you know a doubting Thomas or you know a pretty bold Peter. Um, but putting your, yourself in, in to the perspective of, of some of the other followers, uh, like this fictional woman, for example, um, well, it helps you understand what it must have been like uh, to be there when Jesus starts saying outrageous things like, uh, the Father is working until now, and, and so am I. And, and then all of a sudden, the religious leaders want to kill him. Um, and so you, you sort of follow her journey. And you start to see the lights come on in her own mind as she realizes this Jesus, uh, maybe he's not who I thought he was at first. Uh, maybe he actually is the son of God himself. One of the things you just mentioned about how, you know, the gospel reveals the Trinity, um, kind of to, to wrap up the discussion today, I, I really liked how you talked towards the end of the book about how creation and redemption reveal the Trinity. And I wondered if you could um, speak to that a little bit, explain, you know, how is it that we see the Trinity 
uh, just in, in how we read scripture. Yeah. Well, I'll mention two things in closing. Um, the first thing is the big picture of, of the Bible actually presents you with the Trinity more than you, you may realize. So why is it? Why is it the case that the Father sends the Son? Or the Father and the Son send the Spirit of Pentecost? Well, it's so fitting uh, that the Father send, sends the Son to save us because, well, this is the same Son who's begotten from the Father uh, before all time, from eternity. And likewise, we could say something similar. Why is, why is it so fitting that the Holy Spirit is given? Uh, given to us uh, to indwell us, to cause us to be born again. Well, this is the same Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son uh, from eternity. So the big, the big picture of the Bible actually is is Trinitarian uh, through and through. But also, um, there's also a, another aspect to this, and it's quite personal. If you think about uh, your conversion, um, what happened? Well, we, we've learned uh, previously that um, these distinctions that we've been talking about, the Father is unbegotten and the Son is begotten, the Spirit is spirated. These are timeless. This is an eternal reality. Um, but when we talk about how we come to know this triune God, actually, um, we see the Trinity at work there, but, but very much uh, working the other way, uh, the other way. So, the Holy Spirit came and opened your eyes to, to Jesus Christ. Uh, and um, because of the Holy Spirit, uh, you were united to Christ. He's, as John Calvin once said, he's the bond uh, between the believer in Christ. And as someone who's been united to Christ, you enjoy all this, the, the spiritual benefits Christ has purchased for you. You, you enjoy all the grace uh, that is yours before, before the, the Father. And so you, by the Spirit, through union with Christ, you can cry out, Abba, Father. You are actually one of his children. Well, if that's true, then that means that actually we, we, maybe we don't need to, to always go to some type of uh, formulaic uh, notion. Rather, the, the Trinity and who the Trinity is, is is actually quite intrinsic, both to the big picture of the Bible and to our Christian life, uh, to, to even what it meant to be saved in the first place. So, all that to say, I would encourage listeners, um, you know, yeah, we, we want to learn the deep things of God, and it does take work because this is God we're talking about. So, you know, take out a pencil and, and write down some words and, and some big ideas, and the more you chew on them, um, the more that, that you'll understand them. But also remember that um, actually the Trinity is, is uh, absolutely essential just to the way you read your Bible and to the way uh, you think about your own Christian identity. And we would encourage buying the book because I think 
that would be extremely helpful. Um, I think you could even read it together with a group of ladies from your church and have discussions. Uh, and appreciate you joining us. This was excellent, um, very much so. I look forward to listening to it again. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, love what, what you all are doing and uh, just really grateful for the, the Theology Gals podcast and uh, the many ways you're encouraging uh, so many so many other women out there to to dive into the deep things of God. Well, thank you. And we'll see the rest of you next week. 